It's raining. It felt like it's so timely. We're receiving the care of the rain. It's like nature's metta. So it feels nice to be gathered on a rainy evening, all cozy inside. And uh, yeah, practicing the Dhamma. So we are in a settling, seeing, and luminous awareness retreat. And we've done the two days of settling. Might have felt really long or really short. Then we did two days of seeing, insight practice. Looking at the three ways of seeing that lead to liberating insight. And now we are right in our luminous awareness time. And of course, all along the way, we've had beautiful mindful movement and metta, all to support and stabilize and offer the foundation for this bright, luminous, knowing mind and its discovery. So I'll continue talking about awakened awareness this evening, telling some stories. I want to touch on aspiration and also continue our conversation about this responsiveness that we can call compassion or bodhicitta. Um, Yeah, so we'll end looking at... uh, the ceaselessly responsive aspect of awakened awareness. So Donald mentioned there are lots of names for this, and I want to name more so we can get familiar. There's all these synonyms, and we hear them, and sometimes it can be like, what are we talking about? So we're saying luminous awareness, awakened awareness. In the Tibetan tradition, we would call this Rigpa, especially in Dzogchen, call it Rigpa. In the early Buddhist tradition, it's sometimes called the deathless, the unborn nature of the mind. Sometimes original mind, or the one who knows. Pure awareness, intuitive awareness, primordial purity, the nature of the mind, so many. Sometimes we can call this Buddha nature. From the Samyutta Nikaya, it's called the unformed, the unconditioned. The truth, the invisible, peace, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, the island, the refuge, and the beyond. Sounds pretty good. And Donald quoted the Buddha last night. This is one of my favorite passages from the Buddha. He says, the mind is by nature radiant. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. In Pali, this is called the Pabasara Chitta. Pabasara meaning shining, 
brightly shining, chitta, heart mind. So this teaching is that this mind is shining, whether it's visited by defilements or hindrances, they come and go. But the Pabasara Chitta is always bright, shining, luminous. So one of the wonderful luminaries of the Tibetan tradition, Shabkar, he has a good biography, you can read his biography, Shabkar. He said, the mind is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So these three aspects are a beautiful definition. Someone wrote a note today, what is mind? Can you please define mind? So this is one model from the Dzogchen tradition. I want to talk about these three aspects. So intrinsically empty. This is very much the anatta practice that we were doing. When we can see the emptiness of the self, no self to be found. And then the rainbow teaching where we see, oh, there's just all these conditions coming together, but also falling apart. And it's pervaded by this sense of ephemerality, fleeting quality, sometimes dreamlike or illusory, the emptiness that's vast and boundless, like space, intrinsically empty, the first quality. The second quality is that the emptiness isn't nothing. The emptiness is full of knowing, and that's the naturally radiant quality. That's the luminosity. So sometimes this element, natural radiance, is named clarity. It really is pointing to the capacity of the mind to know. And you've been swimming in this all week. There's emptiness, boundless emptiness, but there's something here that knows. So that's the radiance of the mind, clarity, bright, light, knowing. Second quality. Third, ceaselessly responsive. And all three of these come together. So we are intrinsically empty, naturally knowing and radiant. And look at the heart's response. I mean, aren't we responding all the time with liking and disliking, (laughs) looking to get or push away, wanting, but also very wholesome qualities. If a child runs into the street, we're going to go after them. That's the heart's natural responsiveness. We care. And look at how you respond to the turkeys when you see them. (laughs) That's it. Ceaselessly responsive. Laughter. That's it. That's the responsive aspect. And they're interwoven. We can't take them apart. We can't just have emptiness without the others. They're co-arising. It's like everything is shot through with emptiness, knowing, and responding. So when we look at the mind, as we've been doing all day, these different aspects can come strong, stronger, right? So some of you, I've talked to you this morning with the clapping, some of you saw that boundless sense of like big, big mind, right? 
Really nothing else, just big, empty. Others might have had a real sense of clarity. Oh, I'm here, alive, knowing. Others, you might have felt something in your heart happen. Sometimes they're going to be the, just this sense of, and I've, spoke, I've heard some, just kind of your heart breaking, breaking open. Sometimes it's even melancholic. This kind of poignancy, and we're really touched by the world. That's also the nature of the mind. So when you're looking, I want to just offer a caveat not to look for anything in particular. <laughs> because this, this mind shows up in all these different ways. Sometimes it can feel like nothing happens. Maybe you had the experience this morning of no thoughts. Just blank. And sometimes that can happen. My teacher, Mingir Mbache, calls that naked awareness. And there's not a lot of activity. Also good, fine. All of this is good. But just to say it can show up in all these ways. So this is from Ajahn Amaro, wonderful British monk, uh, who wrote an excellent book I highly recommend called Small Boat, Great Mountain. It was very much in the topic of this retreat. So he says, the aim of the practice is subjectless, objectless awareness. The heart rests in the quality of open, spacious knowing And there's the recognition of the mind's own intrinsic nature. It's empty, lucid, awake, and bright. The Thai people love alliterations. And Ajahn Buddhadasa and Ajahn Chah used to use the phrase Sawang Saat Sangup to speak about this quality. Sawang means radiance or bright light. Saat means pure. Sangup means peaceful. Sawang Sa'at Sangup, radiance, purity, and peacefulness. So in using the term Vipassana, it's important to know that it includes a variety of ways of practice, such as being the knowing, knowing the deathless, and it doesn't refer to just one particular systematic technique. We can employ a range of practices to arrive at the quality of liberation, of realizing the mind's own nature. There are many ways to support emptying out and letting go. Disidentification with thought, feeling, the body, the mind, and the world around us. All can help us towards such realizations. So we're offering so many methods. (laughs) You have so many tools in your box. You can look at awareness of awareness. You can do some kind of clap, letting go, (laughs) right? Dropping. We're going to offer more. We've done the big mind meditation, the bells, and all the samadhi practices, all the insight practices we were doing. There are also ways, all of these techniques to access. But really, all you need is one. So we're offering all of this. So your mind can really see, oh, okay, what's that my particular doorway? Metta, maybe that works for you, or any of the others. Donald's been talking a bit about Mingyur Rinpoche, who's my Tibetan teacher. I think he said the first month long on the nature of mind, maybe Rinpoche pointed out like 10 different methods. And he's always doing this. He's making up different kinds. He does all kinds of different things. 
to show the nature of awareness. So first time I met Mingyur Rinpoche was in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And Rinpoche has a huge monastery there. It's quite beautiful. It's, yeah, beautiful. And Bodh Gaya is um, also beautiful and tough. It's one of the poorest uh, counties in the, the county of Bihar in India. A lot of poverty. Uh, a lot of pollution there. The air, smoky, the water. Um, it's quite a place of paradox because here's this beautiful stupa rising up in the midst of all this and all these pilgrims going and the chanting is going 24-7 around the tree, this big, beautiful Bodhi tree. There's all this very sacred activity, prayers and prostrations going. It's right there in the midst of things. And you walk out and you just see such poverty real suffering there. So as a contrast, my partner and I stayed in a hotel. We'd walk a few miles every day to go to the monastery for teachings with Rinpoche. And it's, it's just such a contrast. Like, here we are. This is the world. And here's this being, very short, <laughs> also kind of round when I first met him. And he was there just so cheerful, right in the middle of everything. We were all coughing and kind of hacking from the smoke and the air. And he too would just go into these coughs in the middle of teaching. And he'd be like, these are the Bodhgaya blessings. <laughs> like Good practice. Really good practice. Just so bright, so funny, very humorous. So this was in 2010. It was right before he uh, went on this famous wandering retreat. So Mingyu Rinpoche is the youngest of five sons and was really raised as a prince, born into a very well-known family of lots of Rinpoches and teachers, uh, very well cared for, grew up as a Rinpoche from young, you know, young age, lots of retreat practice, really well cared for. And so in this retreat, I think he was in his early 40s, he decided to go into a long retreat at his monastery and people were feeding him and taking care of him he decided he needed a different kind of practice. And he knew if he told anybody about it, they would keep him there at the monastery. And so he broke out in the middle of the night. <laughs> he tells a story of like only having a backpack, little bit of money, but no, just his robes, um, jumping over the fence, <laughs> being outside his monastery. And then he's never hailed a cab himself. He's never been on his own his whole life. He's like a Dharma prince. And then for four and a half years, he wandered doing this awakened awareness practice. This is what he was doing. So instead of going away to some pristine place like Spirit Rock, <laughs> he went straight to the Varanasi train station. And he has all these stories of what it was like for him, who had been so protected his whole life to really go out into the world just dependent on the goodwill of people to give him clothing and food and lodging. There's a beautiful book called In Love with the World. Some of you have probably read this book that tells a story, very dramatic story of his time in retreat. So he did this, he wandered. He, knew, he went all over in India, Nepal, different places doing this radical awareness practice. Sometimes he was working in cities. He stayed for an ashram for a while. He was a tour guide. <laughs> this wandering retreat. 
Then he would go back up into the mountains and do more mountain practice, cave practice. Then he'd go back down to the city. Very much flexible daily life practice, I would say. And so in the middle of this, he was very much undercover, but one of his students actually discovered him. He, you know, had all this hair by then and wasn't wearing his robes, but his student said, I saw him, I recognized him by his eyebrows. And so he wrote, Rinpoche wrote a letter for his family, his mom, and all of his students in the middle of his retreat. And it's this beautiful letter saying how he'd been, you know, hungry and cold, but also really well cared for sometimes and warm and all the ups and downs of practice. And so this is one passage from this letter. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being, such that no matter what happens, I know that the true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. And so when he came back, back from his retreat such I felt so lucky to continue studying with him and he he was changed you can really feel when he walks into a room it changes you can feel that and really the sense of his resting in this awareness all the time 24 7 it's quite beautiful that we're alive at a time with beings that are putting these practices to use and and realizing them. So he's always pointing out in all different ways. Rinpoche, the first time I saw this, he held up a flower, and that was his pointing out. I didn't realize, but that was from the Buddha. The Buddha has a flower sermon where all of his disciples are gathered around. He's going to give a big talk. And all he did was just hold up a flower. And Mahakasyapa, one of his main disciples, realized the nature of his mind, this flower. So I always think about Mingir and Pache doing that. He had a big peony, just held it up. Look at the flower. So it can be very simple, the way we recognize our minds. Often Rinpoche says, be like a child in a museum. A child who doesn't know the names of any of the artists, Maybe not even identifying what's happening in the art, but that sense of wondrous, wide-eyed, fresh curiosity. Like, whoa, just look. That sense of amazement is often how it feels when we're in awakened awareness and the world is just here. So fresh, so wonderful. Like the mind of a child. So there's some wonderful stories from the Tibetan tradition of uh, awakening, realization stories. So some, some of my favorite characters is Tilopa. Tilopa is said to be the uh, original, one of the original holders of the Kagyu lineage, which is our lineage, my lineage, Mingyur and Pache's lineage. Um, he lived from 988 to 1069 Tilopa. And he's famous because he wasn't a monk, he wasn't any kind of special Rinpoche. He didn't do years of retreat. You know what he did? He made tahini for a living. <laughs> he ground sesame seeds. <laughs> that was his uh, employment. 
And he was known to be kind of a wild character. He had all his unruly hair, kind of disheveled. Sometimes he would do these uh, uncouth things, like walk around with a fish in his mouth. <laughs> he was kind of undercover, but he was this enlightened master. So I always think, like, I think about what would happen if I just walked in this room sometime, disheveled hair, fish in my mouth. <laughs> just Talofa style. <laughs> So Talopa was the teacher of Naropa. You might have heard Naropa University. So this is named after uh, another wonderful uh, practitioner and teacher who was studying at Nalanda University. He was a very good monk and scholar, but he knew he hadn't really understood the meaning of the teachings. He had to go find his teacher, and he had heard about Talopa. So he goes finding him, and Talopa's wandering on the beach somewhere with a fish in his mouth, grinding sesame seeds. And Naropa was like, I think that's my teacher. I think that's Tolopa. And so Naropa is famous for these 12 deeds. Tolopa said, sure, I'll take you as my disciple, but you need to build a castle seven stories high out of rock in your bare hands. So Naropa did it. And then Tolopa said, now you have to take the tower down with your bare hands. So Naropa did that. Then Tilopa said, now you have to jump off that cliff. So Naropa did that, broke all his bones. There's all these stories. And Tilopa's like, go swim in that leech-infested pond. Naropa did that. He came out with leeches all over his body. And all the while, Tilopa's asking, what did you learn? What did you learn from all these hardships? And this, all these 12 acts that Naropa had to do, this is a little bit like our effort here. I mean, thank goodness we don't have to build towers and take them down. All we have to do is show up and keep watching the breath. But it shows like such dedication that Naropa had. His devotion was so pure. He would just do anything that Tilopa said in the um, service of awakening. I don't care if I break all my bones. <laughs> I believe you. I'll do it. The beautiful story of Tilopa who brought a poisonous snake to Naropa, and he tied the snake in a knot, put it down. And they both watched as the snake unfurled itself. And Tilopa said, what did you learn? And Naropa said, I learned that there's tangles, there's karmic knots, but the mind itself is self-liberating. The self-liberation of the mind. And that snake, the image of a snake untying itself, can often be an image for the mind awakening. When you look at it, it's self-liberating, just like a snake untying itself. So Naropa did all of this hardship again and again and again, didn't get it, didn't get it. Finally, goes to Tilopa. And Tilopa takes off his shoe and hits Naropa over the head with his shoe. And Naropa's mind he got it. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> and Tilopa said, there's nothing more to teach. The final realization is your own mind. It's quite beautiful. We can all be grateful, though, that we don't have Tilopa as a teacher. <laughs> Our awakening can be maybe a little more gentle. So another really wonderful teacher is named Patro Rinpoche. His picture is up here on the fourth row, the first one on the left. 
He was born in 1808. And there's a wonderful book by Machio Ricard, the rainbow guy, uh, called Enlightened Vagabond. It tells all these stories about Patro Rinpoche. Patro Rinpoche called himself Old Dog Patro. And he always told, he has all these songs and poems about his advice to himself. Old Dog Patro, stop feeling so egoic about your practice. Stop feeling superior. Just go sit in the woods. <laughs> all this advice to himself. It's really wonderful. Very uh, pure renunciate. Also undercover a little bit like Tilopa. He would show up and nobody knew that he was the great Pacha Rinpoche. He would play all these tricks in the monasteries. But so his main disciple was named Lung Tok. There's this beautiful story of uh, Pacha and Lung Tok. They would go up climbing a mountain, kind of like our mountain here, and they'd find a spot at the top of the mountain above Zogchen Monastery. They're up on the cliff looking down on the monastery and perhaps the water and the city beyond. And they would do their nature of mind practice together. And Lung Tok was doing, going, doing, going, not really getting it, not really getting it. They're having all these conversations. He would say, Am I, is that it? Is that it? Is that it? Not quite. And so one evening, clear night, they both lied down under the sky and they did this very traditional sky gazing practice that Donald was referencing this morning. Lying down, and Patro said, Okay, Lungtok, can you see the stars above you? Yes, Rinpoche. Can you hear the dogs in the monastery barking below? Yes, Rinpoche. Can you hear us talking now? Yes, Rinpoche. That's it. And Long Tok's mind fell open, and he saw the nature of awareness. It's that simple, very ordinary. So the sky gazing practice can be one that you do. Maybe you did some today. The first time I learned sky gazing was in this room. It was on a women's retreat with Lama Sultram Alioni who is also on the board, kind of in the middle, in the last row there. She's with Sogni Rinpoche. And so she would instruct us. We were all sitting outside on the benches out there, and we were looking at the sky. She'd instruct it, mix your mind with space. That was it. Awareness, emptiness, inseparably united. Ajahn Sumedho, the wonderful Thai forest monk and teacher, he says, the spacious mind has room for everything, like the space in a room which is never harmed by what goes in and out of it. So sometimes when there's big emotions arising or things just feel overwhelming, I'll remind myself that there's room for everything in awareness. Awareness has this holding capacity, just like space. So like space, like the sky, it's empty, yet full of sunlight, cognizant, luminous. And everything arises and passes away within this empty, luminous, sky-like mind. It's unlimited, undimensional, 
And yet it knows everything that's coming through. There's an innate capacity. That's the responsiveness. It's unimpeded. Space is unimpeded. That's like the mind. So when the mind is purified with samadhi, the way we've been doing, there's a natural capacity that comes. It's like you receive enough care and then the natural radiance comes. It's like that. So, so much of our lives, we're used to making the radiance happen, right? We're making things happen. We're going places. We're getting things done. But as you've seen, this is kind of the opposite, this practice. It's a not doing. Sometimes the term non-meditation is used to really look at that not doing. Oh, resting. Nothing to do. Not even meditate. So this is one of my favorite Dharma quotes of all time. Are you ready? From Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, another wonderful Dzogchen master. He's here on the far right, third row. It's Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche. He says, The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages, so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy, which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and generally running away from life experience. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to everything. So in Mingyur Rinpoche's practice community, he has a, a preliminary text that involves lots of things, taking refuge and precepts and things. But my favorite line in his practice text, and this can be practice instructions, even as I read it, you might hear it as a guided meditation. This is what he says. My mind inseparable from the minds of the gurus and all the Buddhas. I rest naturally without fabrication in my basic nature. Not meditating and not distracted in uncontrived ordinariness. Awareness relaxes into itself. It's pretty good. So he wrote this in Tibetan. And my good friend Cortland Dahl is his translator. So Cort wrote, translated this. And when we were doing this in a group, we were saying not meditating, not relaxing, not distracted, in uncontrived ordinariness. Awareness relaxes into itself. Rinpoche said, good translation. Good. So you can use that as a reminder as you're practicing. Oh, awareness relaxes into itself. So often on these nature of mind retreats with Mingyur Rinpoche, yogis have all kinds of experiences. Maybe like some of you are having. They'll come and in the hall like this, they'll report, oh my gosh, everything was rainbow light. 
Or my mind just felt so still and so like the earth is so spacious and still. Or my mind, my body got big or all the images, colors, things we've heard here happening. All kinds of things. And the yogis will be like, everything was sparkling. And Rinpoche always, his response, big whoop. (laughs) Really, he's so uh, unshaken or unimpressed with any of that because he says there's all kinds of flavors when we're starting the mind can have flavors bliss and peace and empty and clear but awareness itself it doesn't have a flavor so often sometimes like the first time I heard Donald do this clap I heard it from another Rinpoche years ago and nothing happened I was like what are you talking about nothing happened. And it really is that that kind of ordinariness, the mind that's normal, that can also be really resting into the nature of the mind. It doesn't have to be big fireworks special. It can feel very ordinary. Yeah, so don't doubt. <laughs> don't doubt that you've experienced it. One time on retreat, I was having a lot of energy movement like thing, lots of things were going on, hard to sit still, not sleeping very well at all, really awake. And I felt distressed. And I went to Rinpoche and I asked like, oh, I have not slept for so long and all this stuff is happening in my body and I'm sitting, I'm shaking and sometimes making sounds, all kinds of things. And he said, "As energy movement. And it's like Donald has said, sometimes our, our energy body needs to work out some of the, the knots and the kinks. So Mingir and Pate said to me, take a hot bath and go for a long run. Such practical advice. <laughs> you know, calm the body, calm the energy, do something normal. So this is good advice. I still use it. <laughs> take a bath every day. I've got a lot of energy going on. And it's really nice to have these, I'm sure all of you have, the self-care techniques that you have. Jonathan's been offering this every day, really helping to balance and smooth because sometimes it can get pretty rocky in there with this practice. So maybe one last Mingir Rinpoche story. Another way that he, lo- he shows us the nature of the mind is by thinking of a candle. And we have candles right here. He's like, this is a candle flame. Right? The candle flame is self-luminous. It lights up itself. Beth was saying this, right? You don't have to make the radiance happen. It's already radiant, self-luminous. You don't need a flashlight to then light up the candle. It's already bright. So sometimes with our effort, we can think, oh, shining, shining, flashlight. Uh, Am I seeing it? Am I seeing it? Uh, It's very, you know, effort. No need. It's already self-illuminating. Longchenpa, who Donald quoted last night, the second in on the third row, Donald calls him Longi. I like that name for him. It's pretty good. So Longi says, awareness is always refreshing itself, always newly arriving, You can neither obtain this awareness nor lose it. I salute the spontaneously perfect universal creativity, self-refreshing awareness, universal creativity as the teacher, 
a direct teaching that you do not need to strive for. I invoke the turning of the wheel of the natural great perfection of spontaneous presence. So when I was 21, I went to India for the first time, and I just started practice, but boy, I was very determined. I had read some and had found a teacher who was taking a group of us to India on pilgrimage, so we were meeting all these great Rinpoches in our lineage. We met His Holiness Dalai Lama, and then the next day, we met His Holiness Karmapa, who I think is four years younger than me. So he was, I think, 17 at the time. Just freshly arrived out of Tibet in India. I remember his monastery is so bright, very sunny day, bright, big blue sky, and we climbed up. He lives on the third floor of the monastery. So we all climbed up, 20 of us, and bright, clear room. I remember him sitting up on a throne, kind of a small, you know, 17-year-old. And we all did our prostrations to him. And we sat down and we each had the chance to ask a question. And I remember there was big birds all in the sky, like kind of circling the monastery, big, beautiful, I don't know what they were, huge birds. And I remember his gaze. I asked the first question. I remember his, oh, it was just penetrating. It was like when he looked at me, he could see my whole like all the things inside, (laughs) which is a little unsettling, but also so powerful to be seen in that way. So I asked him, I said, I love the Dharma. It seems like it's a lot of work. And I just want to be a nun and do the Dharma my whole life, like live in a monastery. And, you know, is that what we have to do? Is that what we should do? Because it seems like the path is so long and it's so hard and And he looked, you know, gave that penetrating gaze, and he said, you don't have to be a nun. You don't have to live in some special place, in some special monastery. He said, for you, you can just be mindful all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And a part of me felt like, phew, so much relief. I can still be myself. In my culture, at my age, just... All I have to do is be mindful. It felt like easy. <laughs> you know, it's taken me like 20 years to figure out how hard that instruction is. Yeah, it's going to take me some lifetimes. Oh, such a big moment of faith, though, because it felt like he was saying, you too can do it. You don't have to be somebody else. You can do it right here. So I heard that, but I also was really intent, very stubborn and determined. So I was always gunning for a long retreat. Okay, well, maybe I'm not going to be a nun, but I'm really going to do a lot of retreat. So it took me a while. I was in grad school, da-da-da, did things, had a job, taught for a while, saved money. And then about seven, eight years ago, I went into a six-month retreat. And this had been the fruition of so much aspiration, not only saving money, but finding the place in this cabin in Southern Oregon in the mountains. And I had been to IMS, I'd done a three-month retreat, so I'd be kind of ready for my six-month retreat. It's really like lots of expectation 
built into this. I had a big schedule. I was going to get up at 3.30 in the morning and do all of this prostrations and all this intensity, all day long chanting, da-da-da-da-da, you know, not much sleep, not much food, no contact with other people, very solitary for six months, no electricity, wood stove, no running water. It's pretty intense. So I got in there. And all these people had supported, people had, were shopping for me, people had given me money to do it. It was all this like, you know, building up, building up. I got in there and I completely fell apart. It was so hard, so lonely, so scared. I was really alone, like isolated in the wilderness. And every day was like, can I stay? <laughs> so suffering so hard. And it didn't change. <laughs> like every single day of those six months, I was like counting the days, so lonely, <laughs> so scared. But what I really had to learn, and this was through the very, a lot of support from my teacher, Eugene, I was talking to him on the phone, with really bad reception. I really had to learn compassion it was like I made a determ- I made a vow to stay in that cabin. I didn't get up at 3:30, and I ate as much as I wanted to. <laughs> but I really was like, if I'm going to stay here, I'm going to do compassion practice. So I sang the phrases to myself all day long, and I walked and I cried and I sang those phrases. Ah. <sighs> oh just trying to be a friend to myself who was like struggling so hard. And when I came out, I was so happy for the world. (laughs) Like this whole story that I'd had for so long that it happens in retreat and I have to do lots of retreat and the world is like so worldly and so difficult and you can't really practice there and I've heard this from some of you, right? You just want to walk away. Like, I want to do a six-month retreat. (laughs) After my retreat, I was like, I cannot wait to practice in the world. And it was all compassion. It was all like, if I can be with this hardship, not just for myself, but on the behalf of the world that is suffering so bad, then let's do it. (laughs) Let's go out into the world and do it. And that's how I feel about all of you, all of us. We're here cultivating these qualities that the world needs so we can go out and do it, right? We're with the hardship on the behalf of everyone. Joanna Macy has this beautiful image of, you know, these times, very apocalyptic times, all the things all all at once, seemingly, She says, the bodhisattvas are all lining up to be born right now. (laughs) That image, you know, the bodhisattvas are lining up to be alive right now at this time. And that includes us. We were born at this time. (laughs) To do this practice, to cultivate these qualities so we can be in the world. So after all of that story, (laughs) I'm going to tell you, so ironic, on November 15th, in about a week, 
I'm about to go into that same cabin and stay for a year. And it's so interesting. This is, again, the fruition of lots of saving and trying to work it out so we can do this. My partner is going to be in a cabin not far away. And we're doing these very specific Tibetan practices. It's like the culmination of a lot, 20 years of aspiring to do this. And I am so resistant. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because that six months was so hard. But the mind, it's so interesting. When there's a story, I'm this yogi going into a 12-month retreat. A year is a long time. I'm going to do this special practice. It's a very thick sense of self. It feels so hard and long and, oh, I'm not going to see anybody. But so beautiful to get to be here in this hall with you all doing these practices that are about awareness moment by moment and noticing how that's time is sort of ephemeral that way, that it's really just about showing up with as much kindness as I can muster and as much relaxing (laughs) as I can do. Letting go of the story and letting go of the time and letting go of the person who's trying to achieve something big. You know, that thin sense of self. I'm entering this retreat with a whole other thing. There's no big schedule. Right? There's no big expectations. Not going to push that heart to radiate out. Right? We can just be very gentle and stay just with that little candle flame. Moment by moment, reminding, gently reminding, just to stay. Befriend this moment. Then it's sort of easy. Then that's what we're doing any, in any situation, whether we're going to back into a very difficult worldly life situation or we're going back into retreat. It's just moment by moment. That's all there ever is. So that's the only place we get a weekend is just right here. Not anywhere else. So I'll come back in a year and tell you how much I love the world and <laughs> so ready to be in the world again and talk to all the people. <laughs> Do love people. Mingyur <laughs> says, beings by their very nature have always been Buddhas. So it's kind of trusting the beauty of your Buddha nature. That's certainly what I'm going to try to do in this little cabin. So it's very paradoxical. I'm sure you've seen this already. It's like we're, you know, we have to work hard. You are working hard. You put a lot of effort. But then there's this effortlessness. Right? We've been trying and trying, and then we tell you not to try. Don't do anything. And that's the paradox. It's always true. We have to, we have to try hard. And then we let go. We're already free. We're already pacified. And still there's little work to do. Suzuki Roshi says that. You're perfect. And you could use some improvement. (laughs) Like both. Sometimes when I have doubt or, or feel afraid or uncertain in the practice, I really think about my teachers you know, those, those role models that we have, we all have them, people who really embody these qualities. His Holiness Dalai Lama, who is like so human and laughing and crying and engaged and loving all the time. I think lots of people, not even in the Dharma, Dr. King was like this. I mean, his 
fortitude and certainty and commitment to peaceful action. So admirable. The writings of Audre Lorde. And there was something happening there. She had some realization. And now these days in our communities, I think about Larry Yang, who's so committed to waking up together. Greta Thunberg, all the work she's doing. I would have to include Oprah and Beyonce on this list as well. <laughs> There's qualities that are in us. And our weakened nature expresses in all kinds of different ways. We've seen this. Each mind is unique. That flawless piece of crystal is so unique. So your awakening is going to look different than anybody else's. So we can get inspiration and devotion from our teachers and then trust that you have it. And yours isn't going to look like Mingyur Rinpoche or Tanahasi Coates or Gandhi or Deepa Ma. It's going to be you. This thing that's not really a self, but that is very unique. <laughs> All these qualities. There's this beautiful sutta from the Majima Nikaya called The Greater Discourse at Gosinga. There's this image of all the, the best Buddhas of the, or best disciples of the Buddha gathering in this beautiful salo wood grove. It's kind of like a wood, redwood grove, big, big trees. And it said, uh, the grove was delightful, moonlit, the salo trees in full bloom with heavenly scents wafting through the air. And the Buddha said, who in this group can illuminate the salo wood grove? And then each of his disciples spoke about their qualities. So Ananda said it's about learning from others. And the Venerable Ravata said it's about practicing in solitude. Anuruddha said it's about obtaining the divine eye. Mahakasapa said having knowledge and vision. Mahamogalana said engaging in Dharma discussions. And Sariputta said having mastery over one's mind. And the teaching is that each of them illuminated with a different way their enlightenment. And that's kind of what we're doing here. Each of us is illuminating our own particular flavor of awakened awareness. So I have so many other pages. So much to say. We'll skip some of this. Maybe tomorrow I'll talk a little bit more about aspiration. But I do want to end with compassion. This is important, this part. So sometimes when we're trying really hard and we have all these intentions for what we want to develop and we're in our practice, it can feel very separate from the world, doesn't it? And the Karmapa said, all refuges are held within complete wakefulness. So in this wakefulness, we start to see the refuges, all beings are here. We see the interconnectedness. We see the interbeing. And we know that we can't awaken alone that we're responding always to the ways that we're connected in the world. It's not void. It's not just us. Even in solitude, we start to feel the deepest connection maybe we've ever felt. So Tulku Orgyen Rinpoche was Mingyur Rinpoche's father, and he was very well known as both Dzogchen and Mahamudra, master of both of these. Very lovely being. He had these Coke bottle glasses. And so he lived in a nunnery above Kathmandu, and many of his Western students, these funky hippies who get to study with him, they would just go visit him in his room overlooking the nunnery 
overlooking the Kathmandu Valley. And so one day, a um, teacher of mine, who was a student of Tokul Orgyans, was there visiting and asking about the nature of mind. And Rinpoche looked down on the courtyard, and there were nuns playing with the puppies in the yard. And Tokul Orgyan said, if someone came along and told me that they had deep, direct realization of the nature of mind, and they looked down on those nuns playing, and they didn't feel deep compassion, then they would be fooling you. Deep realization of the nature of mind includes deep compassion. Because when we see our situation, we see the uh, ways that we're covering over our crystal all the time. The heart breaks open and we see all beings have this intrinsically radiant, flawless piece of crystal as their nature. And yet we don't realize it. We run around and we on our cell phones and stressed out. Not that any of that is bad. That's the arising of intrinsically radiant nature. So our heart is ceaselessly responsive. We practice in lineage. We practice with ancestry. You know, invoking the ancestors, the circle of benefactors practice that we did a little today. We need that. We practice for future generations. We're not alone in it. The Buddha always described the best kind of practitioner who is practicing for themselves and the world, both. And when we fill ourselves up, it can't help but benefit. That's the irony. We don't bypass ourselves. So strengthening our own relationship with the Buddha will always lead to good things. It will naturally be shared with the world. It spills out. Dogo Kensei Rinpoche again, he says, when we recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Uncontrived and effortless. The Dalai Lama recites this prayer every day. He says, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain to drive away the sorrows of the world. So perhaps this path isn't so much about escaping individually. Perhaps it's about awakening to the intimacy of all things and finding us all. When we awaken, all the Buddhas awaken. All the beings are impacted. We, we do it on others' behalf. When you're suffering, think about that. If you can take it on for others, all the beings who have a headache right now, you're practicing with it to be aware for all of them. It makes it much easier. Okay, I can do this. Do another day in solitude in this small cabin by myself has to be in the company of others for the benefit of everyone. It's too hard otherwise. The Zen, Zen monk Ryokan, he says, oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. And the Karmapa says, don't doubt that your heart has the capacity to hold all the suffering in the world. The way awareness can hold everything. So His Holiness Dalai Lama says, I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta. It reminds me a little bit of these questions we've had about radiating. That sense of I can't do it. 
the Dalai Lama says it too. I can't promise that I'm really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. And that's all. So this, I think, points to that sense of intention. It doesn't matter what you feel in metta. It doesn't matter if you feel numb and frustrated. and ah. It's the intention. I realize how valuable and beneficial it is, and that's all. Just keep doing it. So I'll just end with a little bit of Zen so we can make the full circle of all the three lineage, three styles of Buddhism. Okay. So this is Dogen. He talks a lot about the nature of mind. When transmitted from Buddha to Buddha, its mark is self-joyous meditation. To enter this meditation naturally, sitting is the true gate. Though each one has Buddha nature in abundance, they cannot make it appear without practice or live it without enlightenment. If you let it go, it fills your hand. It transcends the one and the many. If you talk about it, it fills your mouth. It is beyond measurement by height and width. All Buddhas eternally have their abode here and all awaken intimately with the world. So when we start to wake up to reality, to become intimate with all things, there's no more separation. And so it makes it more possible to live in the world with all of its suffering and brokenness and the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. And we see the suffering is really not mine or another's, that it's just an infinite unfolding. And that when we awaken to the intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive nature of the world, of the world and us, then there's a deep peace right in the midst of it all. And a lot of wisdom that knows what to do. An appropriate response. So, let's end with another song. This is probably my favorite. Another one from Kempo Slotrum Gyatso Rinpoche, the Rinpoche who loves amusement parks and dancing. <laughs> so I'll sing this for you as, as an end to this talk, but then perhaps maybe we'll learn it also in the chant this evening. Okay. So you can uh, listen to the words, try to remember how it goes, and also you can practice because this is a practice instruction. Okay. Throughout the day and night, look at your mind. When you look at your mind, you don't see anything. You don't see anything. Let go and relax. You want to hear it one more time? Throughout the day and night, look at your mind. When you look at your mind, you don't see anything. You don't see anything. Let go and relax. <laughs> yeah. 
So we'll sing that together tonight. And uh, until then, there's some time for walking and receiving all the care of the rain outside. So let's sit for a moment or two to let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.